This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're especially glad you can join us. For the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a challenge in your personal life or ministry or a passage you're trying to understand or apply or to teach to your children. And if we can be of help, again, you can call us locally at the 843 Exchange, 525-1859, or even toll-free at 877, the call letters you just heard, 877-WAGP980. Many people uh, choose to email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. So many questions come in. I do need to say parenthetically, we give priority to live callers, so if you want to call us live, uh, you can dictate your question, and or you can go on the air live, whatever you're comfortable doing. Again, that 843 exchange is 525-1859. Well, with that said, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Walter, what do we have first? All right, our first question comes in as anonymous out of Richmond Hill, Georgia. They write, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I have two questions regarding Israel. First, would you please address Zionism and the difference in supporting Jews, supporting Israel, etc., and where you stand on Zionism. There is a lot more talk lately, even with Christian friends and acquaintances, about anyone supporting Israel as a state is supporting Zionism, which is a front, quote-unquote, in their words, and nothing to do with the Jewish people. Also, I have a friend who has been teaching abroad for years now who has taken the side of Israel's main enemy because of her experiences hearing from and knowing Palestinians particularly younger people who accuse Israel of atrocities toward their people for years that they claim to have gone through growing up in that region. How should I address this as well? But mainly, please address Zionism. Okay, so uh, Zionism has different definitions. There's Zionism, there's Christian Zionism. So let's see if we can define some, some terms specifically. In the broadest sense of the word, Zionism refers to a movement for the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. There was a man who lived in the 1890s. His name was Theodore Herzl. Herzl was uh, serving in France, and he was persecuted as a Jew. Uh, Actually, what happened initially is Herzl became a Roman Catholic. That's what many Jews did in that day. They became Roman Catholics in order to escape persecution. And then when Herzl saw, uh, as he was reporting, uh, a French, uh, I believe, a captain in the army being persecuted unjustly just for being a Jew, he had had enough. And he went back to his roots and unashamedly confessed that he, in turn, was a Jew. And so he started this movement. He's often referred to as the spiritual father of the Jewish state. And um, he, he started this movement to see if the Jewish people 
could go back to their land to find a sense of protection and care. He was motivated on two levels, uh, politically and religiously. There are certainly people in the Zionist movement who are very secular, uh, some who are Gentiles, who just see uh, the establishment or reestablishment of Israel back then as a Jewish state is a good thing. And then there are certainly uh, Jewish people who were not practicing Jews who went back to Israel just because of all the persecution that they experienced during World War One, World War Two, and really throughout time. But Herzl believed that God had given the land to the people of Israel. He did propose at the 1906 uh, convention uh, that, A, it might be a good thing for us to receive the British's offer of temporarily going to Uganda as a place of protection. And when that was presented at that conference uh, unanimously, virtually unanimously, the people said, no, let's go for what we originally established. We don't need any temporary place that they might want to make permanent. We want a permanent home, and we believe God gave us a land. So let me look at some of the land promises. I turned here to Genesis chapter 12, and uh, God meets Abraham. And by the way, I would say to this person who has this friend that they need to be very, very careful what they say about the Jewish people. God made a promise to Abraham or Abram at that point, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So listen, if you begin to speak negatively about the Jewish people without warrant, and again, you know, we're not saying that everything Jewish people do is righteous and holy, but if you begin to speak against Israel out of the spirit of anti-Semitism, a nation that does that invites the curses of God upon them. And certainly an individual who does that is inviting God's trouble upon their life. So I would just caution anyone to think twice about that. But again, God appeared to Abram here in Genesis 12 and verse 7, and he said, to your descendants, I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Uh, In the next chapter, in Genesis 13, uh, God said, For all the land you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. So if you remember, Lot and Abram had a little bit of a conflict. Uh, The cowboys of Abram were against the cowboys of Lot, and Abram was very gracious and basically said, Lot, you choose what you want, and he chose what looked best. There was a little bit of the world in him, maybe a lot of the world in him at that point. Though he is indeed a believer, you'll meet him in heaven. He's termed a righteous man in the New Testament. Uh, But his righteousness did not practice itself and flesh itself out in everyday life. It was a positional righteousness and not so much experientially. And so God said to Abram after he took what Lot didn't want, I'll give you this into your descendants forever. And then uh, a couple chapters later, here in chapter uh, 17, God said, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will give it to you. Um, In Genesis 15, God even spells out the the geography of the land 
if you remember, this was the time in which God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Abraham was put asleep, and instead of uh, two people walking through cut-up animal parts, in essence saying, I will do, you can do to me what we've done to these animal parts if I don't keep my promise. God puts Abram to sleep, and God uniquely walks through the parts, showing that this is a unilateral covenant. There are certainly covenants and arrangements and promises that God made with Israel that are conditional in nature. The land promise and God's promise to bring a seed that would bless the entire world was unconditional. God was going to accomplish through the Jewish people the Savior of the world, and he gave them a land. And on that day, and it says, and on that day, the Lord Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And so even there and in other places, Deuteronomy 11, Joshua 1, Ezekiel, the um, demographics of the land are spelled out. If you remember, Moses, who writes the first five books, never actually had the chance to go into the land. Uh, Nonetheless, um, God reminded him, he said, I'm going to let you see it. And the Lord said, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God not only made the promise to Abraham, he reaffirmed it to Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to your descendants. And so um, you won't go over there, but this is what I've promised them. And God describes this as an everlasting covenant. This is an everlasting possession, according to Genesis 17, 8. So for someone to say that the Jews, because they were thrown out of the land, don't deserve to have their land, they're going against what God clearly promised in it. Now, within the Zionist movement, again, you have people who are both religiously and politically motivated. Many Jews, especially after the great Holocaust, um, some even said, I'm an atheist. How could a God of love allow this to happen to our people? Uh, nonetheless, they wanted to protect themselves and their families, and they went back. And it's really, again, a, a fulfillment of what God pictured uh, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, I've turned there, and I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. So first there's this gathering, and then in the next verse he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We call this the new covenant, and it's initially established through the blood of the cross. Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant. He's referring to passages like Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Of course, the Jews have yet to see this fulfilled in their lives. There's always been a remnant, as Paul reminds us, but overall he came to his own, his own received him not. But there's coming a time when Ezekiel said at the end of time, God would gather them from the nations of the world. And indeed, as Moses predicted, they would be spread to the four corners. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 21. Uh, The scriptures also predict that God would gather them back. So first there's this physical regathering, and then there's this spiritual renewal. And Ezekiel really gives that vision and that famous chapter that follows here in Ezekiel 37, the unforgettable vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And 
and the bones come to life in stages. First, there's flesh on the bone, uh, sinews on the bones, and then flesh and skin, and finally the breath of life. And they really are a picture of what God would do. And so this whole Zionist movement began where they started coming back in 18, the 1890s. There was only 20,000 Jews in Israel. But on the day of their birthday, May the 14th, 1948, there were some 600,000 Jews. Today, there's over 7 million Jews of 13.5 million in the uh, land. And again, some Jews come back um, because they believe this is their land. This is where God wants them to live. Some, they're literally dragged there. In Jeremiah 16, behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them, talking about the Jewish people, and afterward I will send many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and from every hill and from the clefts of the rock. And so God uses this picture, this metaphor of the personal persecution the Jewish people would go through, and he uses fishermen and hunters to pursue his people, to bring them back, and that's been fulfilled in the last hundred or so years as we've seen the pogroms and the economic discrimination and the genocide and the hatred for the Jewish people. We've seen Western Europe empty out more and more because they're just not welcomed. And even more Jews are going to Israel. When I'm in Israel, I meet all these people from all these nations. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a miracle. It's the only people in the history of the world ever in recorded history that were scattered and they were able to retain their identity, and yet they came back, and not only did they come back to the land of their origin, but God gave them the language of their origin once again, and so Hebrew was revived, and it's absolutely astounding. There's no way to explain it except by the hand of God. Now, when we speak of um, Christian Zionism, again, you know, definition is everything. That's why I tend not to use some terms. I mean, it's helpful sometimes to wrap your mind around a theological concept and you use a particular term, but it's much like Christian nationalism. What does it mean? Depends on who you are speaking with. What does Christian Zionism mean? Depends on who you're speaking with. If by Christian Zionism you mean you recognize that Israel has a right to the land, and that Israel has um, been given this piece of property by God, and it's theirs, and it shouldn't be uh, divided, uh, you know, into um, the Arab nations. The Arab nations have plenty of land. Uh, they, they don't need this land. Uh, God gave it to the Jewish people. He wrote a deed for it in Holy Scripture But nonetheless, if you believe they have a right to the land, then you might call yourself a Christian Zionist. On the other hand, there are people who call themselves Christian Zionists, and they believe what's called dual covenant theology. And dual covenant theology basically says that as long as you are under uh, Old Testament rituals and laws and practicing them, that God will accept you on that basis without having to come to Jesus, though they recognize there will be a time when they will come to Jesus, but if you die as an observant Jew, you can go to heaven. Well, John Hagee, who was a very popular teacher, taught that in the 1980s, and then he was challenged, and he began to lose a lot of market share, and he kind of uh, stepped back on that. 
But to this day, he takes a very conservative view on evangelizing Jewish people. If you know his movement, uh, Christians United for Israel, Kufi, as they often refer to themselves, only if Jewish people ask you about Jesus, then maybe you should bridge that gulf. Well, that's wrong. Jesus said we're to go to all the world and make disciples. We're to preach to every creature under heaven. In fact, Paul underscored to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so to say that Jews, A, don't need Jesus as their Savior, and again, in fairness to him, he rescinded that, but that's what he initially taught. Uh, And there are Christian Zionists today that believe in dual covenant theology, that you can get to heaven without believing in Jesus just because you are Jewish. Clearly, the Bible does not teach that. And so if that's what someone means by Christian Zionism, I would reject it totally. In terms of, um, you know, saying that the Jewish people are cruel towards Palestinians, that's just not true. That's not to say that there haven't been Jewish people who have been cruel to uh, Jewish people, just like I'm sure there have been some born-again Christians that did some stupid things as well. But there's a project called Project Rosanna. It's very famous in Israel. And basically, it's a movement to care for Palestinians. And so there are Jewish, Jewish ambulatory services and the like that will bring um, children, especially out of places like the Gaza Strip, but adults as well, who need medical care that the Palestinians don't have the means to provide for. And again, you've got to realize the Palestinians want to destroy Israel. They want to wipe them off the map. And so we see this portion of land, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the like. And, you know, remember, not entirely, but because there are even born-again Arabs, born-again Arabs who recognize that the Jewish people are God's covenant people and that we've been grafted in. But for the most part, the Arabs today in Israel are Muslim, and they hate the Jewish people, and they want to literally wipe them off the map. Now, the Jewish people, nonetheless, are compassionate, and so they have over 2,000 Israeli drivers uh, that will transport Palestinian patients into their Jewish hospitals. COVID was a classic example of Jewish people caring for Um, so-called Palestinians, um, you know, and making sure their needs were met. And even in combat situations, uh, Israelis have, medics have gone in and taken those who have been shot by Israelis who have survived and cared for them and loved them. And again, this is what God instructed them to do. He reminded them through Moses in Exodus 22, there was a time when you were in the land of Egypt when you were a stranger and you were oppressed and uh, you were the aliens. And, And so I want you to remember that because I want you to treat those who are aliens in your land with the kind of justice that you should have been shown. And so Moses underscores that in both Leviticus 19 and Exodus 22, if I remember correctly. Anyway, It's a good question. It's a fair question. But again, I would say to your friend, they better be careful to speak flippantly. Look, there's a whole movement of anti-Semites in this country who want to make the Jewish people look horrible as, you know, just wicked, 
um, people that, that should be mistreated. And look, you start speaking against God's land and God's eternal covenant, you're inviting trouble on yourself and your family. And I would caution you in light of what God said in Genesis chapter 12. All right, let's go to the next uh, question or caller. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line. Uh, Pastor Carl, I believe we have Keith live uh, on line two. Good morning, Keith. You are live with Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, Pastor Carl. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. It's an honor. Also, uh, your ministry has touched my life in, in great ways, Uh I well, praise to God for that. Sermons and enjoy them so much. A lot of times I have to go back and listen again and again. There's so much detail there, which I greatly appreciate. My question is on uh, on uh, Romans nine. Yes, uh, the Reformed theologist, um, where it says uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I've heard you speak of this, um, and I'm wondering if. I could, if you could speak on it a little more um, and explain that. Absolutely, Keith. And I'll, I'll get off here and listen to your answer, and thank you very much. Yeah, so um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated is what we call, <clears throat> excuse me, a Hebraism. And so it uh, it's a comparative statement uh, that's used uh, even in the New Testament uh, in other ways and in other contexts, again, depending on its its usage. But remember, it goes back to the book of uh, two really two really books that goes back to one is Genesis and the other is Malachi. And so it's important that we understand its its original context in order to see how it's uh, being used. And so let me first go to a Genesis chapter twenty five, if I might. And again, it's a, it's a promise that Malachi is really referencing in Malachi chapter 1 that Paul quotes here in Romans 9. And so in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 11, he says, It came about after uh, the death of Abram. Oh, excuse me. Um, um, I, I miss, I'm in the wrong chapter, Genesis 24. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, uh, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So that's the quotation from Romans chapter 9. And he's referencing two texts of Scripture one from the book of Genesis and one from the book of Malachi. And if we understand what he meant in uh, those two chapters, it comes alive. So here in Genesis 24, remember, she's got this uh, turmoil that's going on in her room, a womb, Rebecca. She'd been married for 20 years, a no child. Finally, God blesses her with twins, and she really is trying to understand uh, what is happening in her womb. And, and I said Genesis 24, here it is, Genesis 22. Um, God had, of course, first made a promise that he would bless the two boys that are in her womb, uh, that he would make them both great nations. And that's important because sometimes people present this whole aspect that, um, you know, God loved Jacob, but he hated um Esau, or God loved Isaac, and he hated Ishmael, when in reality, 
they represent two nations that are in the womb, and God is going to bless one nation over another because God saw in Jacob something that he didn't see uh, in Esau, who becomes the father of the Edomites. And so initially you have Abraham and Isaac, and of course, Isaac had 12 sons. He's the son of promise. They formed the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And then Ishmael, he has 12 sons, and they form the Arab nations of the world. And so you've got Jacob, you've got Esau, you've got the Jewish people, and you have the Edomites. And so God gives a divine sonogram uh, to uh, Rebecca when she's trying to understand all that's happening in her womb. So the text says that she went to inquire of the Lord in Genesis 25 in verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I in this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and then the Scripture says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. I suppose if she'd gone to an obstetrician, the obstetrician said, oh, the problem is you've got twins, you know. And they're both healthy, and that's all that needs to be known. But God prophetically takes it further. Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And so the Jews were stronger than the Edomites. And the older, uh, Esau, the, again, the progenitor of the Edomites, shall serve the younger. And, of course, that's quoted in the last part of Romans 9 and in verse 23. So it's clear between Genesis and Malachi that God is predicting one group of people, namely the Jews, to have ascendancy over the other people. And so in Malachi, they ask a question, how have you loved us? And um, they say, what do you mean, how have you loved us? And so Malachi has kind of a unique style. He has these questions, and he answers them, and he reminds them, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, but I have hated Esau. Does that mean that God literally hated Esau? No, it's a term of comparison. Uh, you can't have hot without cold. You can't have love without hatred. And so God had said also through his son, unless the man hate his father and mother, he can't be my disciple. Was Jesus contradicting what he said elsewhere? Of course not, because Jesus taught that you're to honor your father and mother, and he called the Pharisees out on that on a number of occasions because of the way they dealt with their parents. They would uh, take some money, and their parents had a need, and, and they would say, Corbin. Uh, meaning dedicated to the Lord. I can't help you with this because this is dedicated to God. And they, they mistreated their own parents. So Jesus taught the need to honor father and mother. But he did teach also that if your love for parents supersedes your love for God, then it's out of whack. And that's true in every realm. Uh, I'm to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And Audrey knows that she's number two that Jesus is number one, and she prefers it that way because she knows that when Jesus is number one, I'll do a better job of loving her like Christ loved the church. In fact, in a parallel passage in Matthew 10, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, doesn't say that hating your father and mother, but he uses a comparative statement that you have to love me more than father and mother. And that's the view that's uh, in, in, in line here, that God is going to choose one nation 
over another, but it doesn't have anything to do with personal election, that God chose um, one nation or one person, say, to go to hell as it's used by the Calvinists, and another person to go to heaven. That's not any more true than it was with Isaac and Ishmael. Do you think Ishmael's in hell? This son that Abraham dearly loved, this son that Abraham brought up in the ways of the Lord, though he was not the son of promise and becomes the father of Arab nations, you'll meet him in heaven someday. Um, And God promised to bless him, not as an unbeliever, but as a believer. But again, he didn't have the same role as his brother did. God kept narrowing the focus because he wanted to make it very clear through what nation, what people of the world that the Messiah would come. And so in broad terms, he has to come from, you know, Isaac's lineage and he has to come from Jacob's lineage and and Jacob has 12 sons, and, and then he narrows the focus out of those 12 sons, those 12 tribes. He has to come from the tribe of Judah, and he narrows the focus a little bit more, and he says out of, those, out of the tribe of Judah, he has to come from the family of David. And, and God is pinpointing the um, way in which the Jewish people could identify the true Messiah. And so, sadly, Esau, well, he's of a different flavor You know, he's described in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 as being a godless man, a Babylos man, uh, not a compliment by any respect. People debate whether or not we'll see Esau in heaven or not. The fact that we do know to be true is that God is dealing with um, his brother as having ascendancy over him because it's through his brother that the Messiah is going to come. But understand what it is that drives guys like Calvin and others uh, to come to some of these conclusions that they do in chapter 9. Remember, John Calvin comes out of Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholic theology had been established for centuries that they had replaced the people of Israel, that they were now, quote-unquote, the new Israel. Now, I think Augustine taught that, and Augustine, well, the Catholics will claim him, Protestants will claim him as well, but his theology was definitely fleshed out by the Roman Catholic Church and really broadened, and so you can read of all these popes who are just gross anti-Semites. And when you go to Israel and you go to places like Yad Vashem and you see these quotations on the wall of these popes in all of their garb and the hateful, ugly things they said about the Jewish people, not to mention Luther and the ugly things he said, not to mention Calvin and the ugly things that he said, they think this is the way all Christians are. And so, because Calvin started with the premise, because he's saved out of Catholicism, but he puts a different spin on it, he doesn't say that the Roman Catholic Church is the new Israel, but the body of Christ, those who are regenerate, born again, are the new Israel. And so, Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, started a theocracy, and he put to death, for instance, Michael Silvertus. Uh, Silvatus was certainly heretical in his doctrine of the Trinity, and so he flees Roman Catholic persecution and thinks he can find some shelter in Geneva, as many of the Protestant reformers had fled there because they were being butchered by the Roman Catholic Church. And when he gets there, he finds out he's not welcome there, 
And so because they believe that he's speaking blasphemy under the Old Testament theocracy, he should be put to death. Calvin advocated by the sword. But when he presented that picture to the council there in Geneva, they outvoted him and said, no, he's going to be burned at the stake. And so, again, he saw uh, the church as the new Israel. That's why he had a theocracy. The theocracy of Israel was unique. But if you just give the Bible to, say, even a young Christian, and you ask them to read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you ask them, tell me in one word what these three chapters are about, uh, they're going to say Israel. In chapter 9, Israel is elected out of all the nations of the world. And that's the focus of chapter 9, how God chose Israel to bring the Messiah. In chapter 10, he's dealing with the issue of their rejection of the Messiah. If they're elected, why was it that they didn't embrace Jesus as Lord? And of course, it's the same reason most Gentiles don't today, because they were self-righteous. They thought they could achieve a righteousness on their own. And that's Paul's argument in the early verses of chapter 10. But he reminds them that they should call upon the Lord in faith, for whoever will call upon him will be saved. And then in chapter 11, well, if they are in unbelief, what's their future? In chapter 11 deals with their future restoration. But 9 with their rejection, um, with their election, 10 with their rejection, 11 with their restoration. The focus is the nation. Not God choosing some people to go to heaven and some others to go to hell. But um, uh, Keith, as he uh, calls from Kentucky, you might want to listen just to those messages on Romans 9. I think they would be very helpful. In fact, really, ideally, listen to 9, 10, and 11. If you go to searchthescriptures.org and type, type in Romans, you'll see, I think there's about a dozen messages on those three chapters that I think you'll find helpful. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, I believe we have Alberto who is live with us from Savannah on line one. Good morning, Alberto. You're live with Pastor Carl. Well, good morning, gentlemen. I, I was watching this video by Jacob Frosch, and he was talking about all the different things that the Puritans and the Protestants and all the, they were doing jihad against all the people. They were killing and burning and everybody, the, 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 Jake, the Calvinists were killing people, the, the Protestants were killing people, the Puritans were killing people, you know, and then when they, 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 John Knox and John Owens, they all did that massacre. So we were, the, the, the Christians owned apologies to the gangs across America and all the apologies to, to the Islam, the terrorists, because the dead did the same thing. What the terrorists are doing, they are an apology to them. So, and plus, also, John Knox brought that to Salem, Massachusetts. They opened a hole, and they sick a woman in, and she drowned. She, she was not a witch. If she, she didn't drown, they'll burn her and hang her alive. So what do you think about that? Well, it's, it's not absolutely accurate all that you've said about John Knox and some of the Reformers, but some of it is true. When we look at the history of persecution— uh, by so-called Christians. Most of it was done by Roman Catholics against Protestants. And so because the Protestants were teaching that you're justified by grace alone through faith alone, that you should um, embrace that, and that was totally contradictory 
to Roman Catholic teaching, and it didn't fit because Roman Catholics have never affirmed sola scriptura. They place above Scripture and in line with Scripture and equal with Scripture the tradition of the Church, not just any tradition, but traditions that have been dogmatized ex cathedra. Ex cathedra is the Latin phrase from the chair. And so the Roman Church would be quick to say that not everything a pope has said should be embraced, but only official dogmas when the pope speaks on an issue of faith or morals from his chair, that that is in the same level in line as Scripture. And the Protestants had great trouble with that. And for that reason, they were largely persecuted. Uh, When you think of those who killed Muslims, the Crusades, please understand that was not done by Protestants. Protestants didn't even exist then. That was done by Roman Catholics. And there were certainly Christians who were not part of the protest movement. When we think of Protestantism, we're typically lining that up with the Protestant Reformation that most would establish with Martin Luther when on October 31st in 1532, uh, he tacked to the door the 95 theses or 95 assertions, 95 places where the Roman Catholic Church had differed and deviated from what the Scripture says. And so, again, uh, they're they're interesting to read. Uh, Most of them actually deal with the subject of... um, with persecution. So 31 October, I said 1532, 1517. I'm really tired this morning. So, uh, but lay that aside. Um, that was the start of the Protestant Reformation. That's not to say that God did not have his people. There were always people who were born again Christians. Uh, the gates of hell will never prevail against God's church. And so he always had his people, whether it's the Waldeseans or others who met in congregations that had nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. But the people who get the largest amount of press are certainly uh, those people who left the Roman Church. And so they were protesting Roman Catholic doctrine, like a John Calvin, like a Martin Luther. Um, Luther and Calvin, as far as I know, never once put to death a Roman Catholic person. They did, however, at least um, Calvin advocated for the death of blasphemous people, and so I just mentioned Michael Selvetis. Uh, Sadly, Luther said that, you know, the Jewish people should be oppressed, that their synagogues should be burned, their Talmuds should be destroyed, they should have no passports and the like, and So he was oppressive towards the Jewish people. What a gross stain on his life and testimony. In terms of the Puritans who you mentioned, again, they thought that because they had replaced Israel, puritanical theology is amillennial. They viewed themselves in the place of Israel. And so in Salem, we speak of the Salem witchcraft trials, um, it, you know, it's not like thousands of people died. Uh, what they did was wrong, but they, they, they hung 12 witches and one dog, if I remember the numbers correctly. Uh, they, you know, persecuted some of these people to death. Was that right? No. They weren't in a theocracy. 
And so they did not have the same kind of freedom that God gave to the Jewish people where he was preserving the nation at its start so that they might, in turn, uh, be able to be the unique people from whom the Savior of the world would come. So I, I, I don't know where you're getting some of your church history, but most of it from what you just said uh, was inaccurate. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes in as a live dictation. Um, a listener has been told that when people speak in tongues in the church, that it is wrong if there is no interpretation. Is that correct? Well, that's certainly how Paul regulated tongues, um, that uh, only... Uh, a limited number in a service. Uh, what comes to my mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let me just say that sometimes people mean different things when they speak in tongues and uh, what that means, what that looks like, and that it should be an experience by every person. Uh, historical Pentecostal doctrine taught that unless you spoke in tongues, you could not be saved. They later pulled back on that and they said, well, Unless you spoke in tongues, uh, you didn't have the Holy Spirit. They later pulled back on that, and they said, unless you spoke in tongues, you were not filled in the truest sense with the Holy Spirit. And some have even stepped back off, off of that. But remember, tongues is one of 20 spiritual gifts given in the New Testament. And so the Apostle Paul, for instance, describes the way God makes up spiritual gifts with our physical body. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were, uh, the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body as he desired. Now, his argument, if you understand the context, is that they were exalting, in this case, tongues over some of the primary gifts that should be exercised when the church came together. And so he goes on and he describes that every member is needed, and he ends up in this chapter by asking a number of parenthetical um, rhetorical questions of sort. All are not apostles, are they? Of course not. All don't have the gift of apostleship. All are not prophets, are they? Of course not. All are not teachers, are they? Of course not. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All do not interpret, do they? No. But then he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And so he says, pursue love in the love chapter and yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you, you all, it's plural, may prophesy. Now, he's already argued in chapter 12 that you don't determine what spiritual gift you get, uh, that the Spirit of God, for by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. And he makes it very clear that the Spirit gives the various gifts as he wills. In fact, four times four times in the New Testament, it's underscored that you don't determine your spiritual gift. God determines it for you. But here he says, I want you to earnestly prophesy. It's you all because he's saying if one speaks in a tongue, does for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands. 
but the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So he's saying when you come together as a church, a clear teaching and preaching must predominate. Now, what was the function of tongues? Well, remember, there was a time in the history of the church when the scripture had not been completed, and so God used different means to give direct revelation. Uh, One gift was prophecy. And so a woman could even prophesy in church. That would parallel to a woman reading scripture in church today. A woman could read the Bible in church. Now, to say that she can teach and exercise authority over a man and to be a pastor, that's another issue altogether, and Scripture forbids that. But she could prophesy, and again, why? Because God would use different godly men and women to be direct conduits of revelation because they couldn't say, well, what does God say about this subject or that subject when the books had not yet been written? Remember, for nearly a decade, the only books that the early church used was the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The first book of the New Testament had not yet been written. And so they studied the scriptures when they gathered on the Lord's Day, whether it was Genesis or Malachi or because, again, Christ is there. And it was a beautiful thing because as they read then the New Testament, they read it with a great sense of understanding because the New Testament habitually Um, interacts and interfaces with the Old Testament. And so even with the gift of tongues, again, it was a uh, means by which God would communicate and by which um, he would give direct revelation. And he gave parameters on how it should be done. Um, And so, for instance, he says, he reminds us that even like with prophecy, he said only two or three prophets in any given service. And he says the same with tongues, but only if someone is able to interpret. And so for someone to speak in a tongue in the service and no one can interpret that tongue, then it basically does no good. Let me read to you. It says, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. And then he says, what's the outcome of them? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the mind also and so on. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, if you speak in a tongue and no one understands what you're saying, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen or give thanks? Because they don't know what you're saying, he says. Um, And so Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues. Paul had that gift. Um, However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so I may may instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so, again, he... He, he gives specific guidelines as to how it should unfold. If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter in, will they not think that you're mad? Yes, they will. And if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters in, he's convicted by all. Why? Because he can understand the prophecy. And so, again, he says, let everything be done decently and in order for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. That would shut down most of the tongue speaking services, only two or three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So again, certain parameters and only if someone can interpret. Now, question. 
is the gift of tongues being given today? And I would say no. Why? Because the miracle of tongues was the ability to speak in a known language. The word is glossolalia. It's always used of a known language. And he modifies it with the word dialectos. We get our word dialect. And so I don't really know Chinese except a few phrases because I've been there a few times. But um, nonetheless, if I could speak perfect Chinese and not only Chinese, but say the dialect of Mandarin, You'd say, that's incredible. That's the miracle of tongues. And what we see today in the so-called Pentecostal charismatic movement is not the miracle of tongues. It's not at all. And again, it can easily be tested. It's kind of sad, maybe a little bit of a mockery, um, but there are certainly brothers and sisters who've gone into churches and they've memorized a verse, say, out of the Hebrew Bible or out of the Greek New Testament claiming that they're speaking in a tongue, and then someone stands up and gives an interpretation. It has nothing to do with the verse that was just quoted. But that's um, what happens in some churches where they even attempt to interpret. Uh, again, even if you put these parameters, only two or three in a service, and only then if someone could interpret, then it would shut down most of it. And really, you ought to be able to um, take someone who speaks in a tongue have someone interpret, and then play that same tongue that someone else spoke. You choose anyone whom you think has the gift of interpretation, and they ought to be able to come up with the same interpretation. It's never, ever, ever happened. Why? Because what we're seeing today is a sham. It's no different from what I witnessed when I went to India. There's Hindu groups that speak in tongues. They sounds no different, zero difference. Even though they speak an entirely different language, it sounds no different from what we're seeing in the so-called Christian charismatic movement. They are people in India. These are Hindus I'm talking about, Hindus, who fall on the floor, supposedly slain by some power. They laugh uncontrollably. These, these are all um, really misrepresentations of what God says in Scripture. Now, some of them would say, okay, I admit I'm not speaking in a human tongue. I'm speaking in an angelic tongue. And they'll bring you, again, 12, 13, and 14. There need to be read as a unit of 1 Corinthians. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, they'll say, there it is. You can speak maybe not in a known human tongue, but you can speak in an angelic tongue because they will admit that none of the tongues, not one, can be identified with a single human language today. And so their argument is this is an angelic tongue. But Paul is using hyperbole to make his point. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, is Paul saying that there are some people who know all mysteries and have all knowledge? The only one who knows all mysteries and has all knowledge is God himself. He's using hyperbole to say that the exercise of gifts without love is meaningless. And he's not advocating um, that there are angelic tongues by no stretch of the imagination. So, if you want to study this, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org, and I have a course on the subject of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are important, and there are 20 that are listed in the New Testament. I think 16 that are being given today. I don't think tongues or interpretation or miracles 
um, or healing, those four gifts are being given. Do I believe God still does miracles? Yes, he can do it, but not as he did through the apostles. Uh, That was a sign that was given by God to confirm, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, an apostle is a called one, uh, a sent out one by the Lord God. Uh, And so we do not see miracles happening through individuals in the way we saw. Now, God can answer prayer and do miracles sometimes, and he does do that. But that's very different from the exercise of the gift of miracles or the gift of healing in the New Testament. So when the canon of Scripture was completed, church history records that the gift of tongues dried up. It was gone. And it didn't supposedly reshell until around 1900. But what showed back up was not what left at the early part of the church. But again, I have a course at searchthescriptures.org, Spiritual Gifts. And it's interesting, of the 16 non-signed gifts, there's a common responsibility to each of them. So there's the gift of teaching, but all Christians should in some sense mature enough where they can teach, answer basic questions, so they may not have the gift of teaching. There's the gift of serving, but all Christians should serve. He that would be great must be the servant of all. There's the gift of mercy, but all Christians are to display mercy and so on. Not so with the sign gifts. So, um, again, there's these serving gifts, there's these sign gifts, and even some of the serving gifts take on a different meaning. Prophecy today has no more future dimension to it where there's new revelation coming because, again, the canon of Scripture is closed. And to come up and to say, well, listen to what God is saying. Well, are you adding to revelation or are you subtracting to it? And God gives this warning at the end of the revelation. Anything that adds to it or subtracts to it is very dangerous, according to the book of Revelation. It's not something you want to do and be guilty of. And so that's what's happening in movements today. And again, I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you how many people have visited Community Bible Church in the last three decades, where I've been the pastor, who claim they have spoken in tongues, but they didn't even know what the plan of salvation was. Did they have a spiritual gift from God? No, because tongues in the first century, as today with all the spiritual gifts that are given, are only given to born-again, regenerate people. Do you have to know the gospel to be born again? Of course, that's what makes you born again. You have to know what it is, and more than know it, you have to believe it. You have to respond to it. So take the spiritual gifts course. If you're not enthusiastic enough to take the whole course, though I would recommend it, Listen to section six, where I deal with the sign gifts in the New Testament. Well, we're out of time. A lot of questions came in. We didn't get to them, but God willing, there'll be another Bible line, and and we'll have that opportunity. God bless you as you walk with Christ. If you don't have a church home, come to Community Bible Church. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for uh, campus um, places and directions and times of services. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.